Hello and welcome to Combat and Classics Podcast. It's Brian Wilson in Dallas, Texas. And I'm Jeff Black from St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland. And we are back with Shiloh Brooks for book three of The Education of Cyrus. Shiloh, welcome back. Thanks for having me back. So Shiloh is going to do a brief intro uh, and summary of the three chapters in book three. And then Jeff's going to kick us off with an opening question. So Shiloh, over to you. Yeah, so there are three chapters in book three. Um, we uh, Last time we um, uh, concluded with Cyrus um, uh, attacking the Armenians because he needed money. And so today he, he, atta- he has attacked the Armenians. He now has defeated the Armenians. And um, he's got their king. Uh, and he's sort of, the king uh, is terrified of Cyrus and runs up on a hill. And Cyrus says, well, um, you're going to have to figure something out. You're either going to have to come down or we're going to kill you. Which one do you choose? And the guy's like, neither one. I don't want either one. And so then Xenophon very delicately says that he recognized necessity and came down. But uh, so what happens um, in this chapter is that Cyrus puts the Armenian on trial to try to discern uh, in front of both Cyrus's own men are invited to the trial and also the Armenian people, which is interesting, to try and discern whether this Armenian had not made good on his promise to pay the Medeans, who are Cyrus's ally, tribute. And so he engages with him in a dialogue. It's very uh, Socratic sounding in which Cyrus attempts to prove to this man that he's in fact guilty of all these things. Uh, of, of, of building fortifications when he wasn't supposed to, uh, and of, um, of not paying tribute, not just in Cyrus's eyes, but in the Armenian king's own eyes. He, Cyrus says, how, do you, how would you treat someone who's done what you've done? So um, he engages with him in dialogue, but then very fortuitously, um, it, it, during the trial, uh, the Armenian son shows up, whose name is Tigranes, and Tigranes, um, comes and says, Cyrus, we used to hunt together when we were young. I think you're making a mistake with my father. Let me talk you through um, the mistake that you're making so that you can see in a way what's truly in your interest. So Tigranes, it's a very interesting. Cyrus is a smart man. He's rarely challenged or refuted. This is one moment in the book, maybe the only moment in the book where someone outdoes him in a very interesting way. And so they talk through and lo and behold, Tigranes appears to change Cyrus's mind about uh, killing his own his father, the Armenian king. Um, but it's unclear what Cyrus was actually doing in the first place. Did he really change Cyrus's mind? Was Cyrus going to kill the guy? He appears nonetheless to learn something from Tigranes, and so we should probably talk about that. Um, and then they have this very interesting dialogue, which which I'll just mention briefly, and we should touch on where to. Uh, to Tigranes and Cyrus apparently used to study together with a wise man who Tigranes' father put to death. Um, uh, And so we should talk about this because this again uh, appears Socratic in some way. So uh, then chapter two uh, comes along and in chapter two, Cyrus says um, to the Armenian and to Tigranes, um, hey, don't the Chaldeans or the Chaldeans live up in these mountains and don't they, uh, haven't they been unjust to you and don't, you know, don't they owe something and all these sorts of things. And so Cyrus just finds injustices that people have done to other people and then goes and solves the problem. Um, but he, so he then attacks these mountains, the, to, to these, this mountainous people. They're a kind of small band of mercenary people that live in the mountains. 
He attacks the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans and the Ar Armenians have been uh, fighting with one another for generations. He attacks the Chaldeans and uh, interestingly brings them down off the mountain, um, engages them in negotiations with the Armenians and sets up a truce between them um, such that the Armenians won't attack the Chaldeans and the Chaldeans won't attack the Armenians. And in fact, they can use one another's fields uh, to, to plant and to graze and these kinds of things. And then Cyrus will set up a neutral uh, arbiter uh, to watch over this arrangement such that peace is kept. So that's what happens um, in chapter two. And it's a very interesting example of, of Cyrus's cleverness. Um, and then in chapter three, um, Cyrus is preparing finally to attack the Assyrians. The Assyrians are the people who have come, uh, who, who he originally left Persia to attack. So he's preparing to attack the Assyrians and he has a number of conversations with very important characters, Syaxares and Chrysantis. And the character of these conversations essentially with Syaxares is should we attack or should we not attack? Um, Cyrus disagrees with Syaxares at every single moment and proves him wrong and proves him, shows himself to be a better general. And the conversations with Chrysantis are about um, whether or not the new additions to the army, namely the Persian commoners, the Armenians, and the Chaldeans can be made to be as virtuous as the Persians are in a single day or without an education, um, or whether or not um, that's impossible. So this is the, what goes on in the three chapters. Um, primarily, of course, at the end, there's a great conclusion where the Persians, the Persian alliance, which is the Persians, the Armenians, and the Chaldeans, do attack the Assyrian and appear to, um, uh, even though they are inferior in numbers vastly, uh, get the upper hand. Yeah, thanks, Shiloh. Uh, so, whereas book two left us on two cliffs, right? What's going to happen with the Armenian? What's going to happen with the Assyrians? Now we've just got one cliff at the end of book three, right? An inconclusive but apparently victorious battle uh, against the Assyrians uh, and more battles have to come. And so we're gonna see what happens in book four next time. Uh, but for this time, I wanted to um, add to Shiloh's summary of the events by just reminding us of two thematic issues that we've been talking about. Uh, the first is what are the problems for Cyrus, the things that get under his skin? Um, one is uh, people who are not virtuous who get rewarded, right? He's bothered by that. He said that he wants to get them out of his army, and he's going to be dealing uh, with one of those people, apparently, in the person of the Assyrian king. And second, there are people who are virtuous but don't get rewarded. And we talked about that a little bit last time, the ugly uh, beloved of one of the um, Persian captains. Uh, and we'll see if there's any case that applies uh, in this book to that problem. And in dealing with these problems or in pursuing whatever his agenda is, Cyrus has two powers so far. He's got the power of the Persian peers, a lifetime of training in self-control or moderation, and he's got the power that he's unleashed in the other members of what is rapidly becoming a kind of cosmopolitan army. Um, namely the power of the desire to acquire or the hope for future goods um, or anger, maybe, in the case of um, one of the commoners that we talked about last time. And so uh, it seemed to me that a theme for this book that we're going to talk about today, book three, theme that especially comes up in chapter one with the dialogue with Tigranes and chapter three with the dialogue with Chrysantis, 
um, is the power of fear. Um, and so that leads me to my question. Um, how powerful do we think fear is, according to Cyrus? Are there things it can do? Are there things it can't do? And this bears on what Shiloh was asking too. Does Cyrus learn something about fear in this book? Or did he know something about fear already and we just see what that thing is that he knew so that he's educating us? So yeah, what do you guys think? How powerful is fear, according to Cyrus? You know, I think um, I'd like to tackle that in, in a way that brings in moderation, right? Because I think that Tigranes, this, the, the speech that Tigranes gives is all about moderation, right? And this seems to be something that potentially resonates with Cyrus if we think that he has changed his mind. Um, and it's, it's at least resonated in um, because we see him use the same word in uh, chapter two when he's talking to um, the Chaldeans, right? And so he gets this speech about from Tigranes about moderation, and then he uses that same term to talk to the Chaldeans about moderation. So it seems like that's resonated with him to a degree, this idea of moderation. And he's all, but he's thinking about fear as well, and it's kind of an or else thing. But I'm very confused as to how the idea of moderation would go along with fear. Like how can we say that those two things are happening at the same time? Yeah, that's really good uh, for me. And I think I share your confusion. Uh, it seems to me we've got at least two possibilities of moderation so far before book three starts. You get to be moderate, whatever that means, by a lifetime of training, right? Like the Persians do, or you get to be moderate if you have one desire that is so strong, it doesn't leave you time for the other desires about which you're moderate, right? Like if you're, if you're totally about being loved by other people, you don't have time to uh, spend on fancy food or, you know, uh, you know, riding horses or something like that, unless those things contribute to being loved by other people, right? So it looks like there are a couple different ways, a long education or just being lucky to have a nature with one part that's really strong and other bits that are relatively weak. But now it looks like uh, Tigranes is at least advancing the idea that uh, fear can make you moderate. And so I think this is exactly the right tra track, Brian. Thanks for putting us on it. So how would that work, fear makes you moderate? What's the claim? Yeah, and the, it, interestingly, um, he has to moderate Cyrus in the, um, I mean, it's very difficult to, to tease this stuff out, but he, he has to moderate Cyrus in the dialogue because it seems like Cyrus thinks punishment is good for the father. And it seems like he thinks death is good for the father. And then Tigranes, it, uh, keeping in, in keeping with the theme of moderation, says, oh, no, 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 not death. You just want him to fear you and then keep him alive. Be moderate. And one thing, uh, I, I can't much make sense of the moderation talk. We should talk more about it. I'm very interested in it. But one thing I think that is important to point out before um, we try to get deeper at the moderation, um, the content of the moderation lesson, is that um, Tigrani seems to think that Cyrus is confused about his own good. Cyrus doesn't understand what the good is for him in this situation. And I point this out only because Tigranes is said to be a man educated by a philosopher or a wise man. And of course, anyone who's, who knows Xenophon's great teacher 
knows that Xenophon's great teacher was very good at showing people that they were confused about the good, what they thought the good was. They thought it was one thing and then they talked to Socrates and they're like, oh wait, it's a different thing, you're right. That's exactly what happens here. And of course, it uh, hot on the heels of this conversation comes the claim that the um, teacher was put to death, Tigranes' teacher was put to death by his father because of jealousy on the part of the father. So um, as we consider this uh, question in moderation and, and what, what its contents are and why it's here, we should think about, in a way, I think what Xenophon is trying, Xenophon may be trying to teach us something Socratic, and it seems like there's something that Tigranes knows that Cyrus may not know, and that Xenophon knows that Cyrus may not know, and that Socrates knew that Cyrus may not know. And so I point all these things out. Um, but it seems to me that, that the, the first lesson in moderation is that um, uh, you, you shouldn't kill my father because I, I believe the way it goes is if he fears you, he'll be of use to you and be, and will be eager to gratify you. Whereas if you install one of your friends, um, they, can, they have no reason to obey you, they can go rogue, et cetera. And so that's, that's the sort of practical content of the lesson in moderation. You know, I also wonder, you know, Jeff, you asked the question, does fear make you moderate? And I wonder in terms of, in terms of Cyrus, if he ever demonstrates any fear himself. And if not, your question implies that he can't be moderate. And I'm looking at kind of his actions during this, this, um, this book that we're in. And, you know, he attacks the Armenians while there's a, there's a war going on with the Assyrians, right? He goes, let me take some chunk of your, um, you know, chuck of this army, this Persian and Median army, and let's go, you know, attack the Armenians. So you've, reduce the amount of combat power you have like on the field ready to take on the Assyrians. That seems relatively risky. Uh, you then announce yourself to the Armenians and say, Hey, we're coming. Um, and then you attack them and then you immediately attack the Chaldeans very quickly after that, you know, all of these things are done at an incredibly rapid tempo. And then you form up an army from you know this Armenian and Chaldean folks that you've just kind of signed a peace treaty with, dragged them back uh, to fight with the Assyrians, and then uh, go right into battle, basically, and look for an opportunity to take the fight to the enemy. And so I don't, I don't know how moderate Cyrus is, and it, it kind of comes back to your statement, Jeff, about what you said about a lifelong training right? An aesthetic form of training. It might be that he is so moderate in his personal life. You know, he's taking this money from the Armenians to pay his troops. He's asking money from the Indians to pay his troops, honor his troops, but he's not keeping any of this for himself. Uh, but when faced with war, it seems like he is perfectly comfortable taking monster risks so, you know, I, 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 as I was kind of trying to sum up this book for myself, I, I, I just wrote risk versus moderation, you know, because even in little things, like he contradicts um, Syaxerxes like multiple times, like Shiloh said, and that's, you know, that's a risk when you're not in charge and you're in, you know, the battle council and you're going, no boss, don't do that. So I'm, I'm just wondering 
Uh, I mean, maybe we've solved it with the idea of this aesthetic aesthetic lifestyle and training, being able to exert yourself in a very risky way outside of that. Um, but I'm just wondering how how we understand moderation in terms of Cyrus. Interestingly, I mean, I agree with what you say about his risk taking. On the other hand, would you say that he's moderate insofar as he's prudent? In other words, he doesn't take stupid risks. And when, when he does take them, they work. He's right. <laughs> you know, he's like, look, you're, he's right every time. And so there's a sense in which his moderation is, at least as it, when it comes to tactical matters, is identical to wisdom. He, he seems to, to have a kind of, um, you're right, a kind of love of risk, but he sees precisely those risks that are worth taking in each time. I mean, throughout the book, it pays off every time. And so I wonder if there's not something in there that's moderate with respect to his military or tactical knowledge. Um, but I agree with what you say about his um, um, perhaps reckless imprudence to be willing to take risks in the first place, all for the sake, it seems, of being um, uh, crowned emperor of the world or at least loved by people, you know? So that is a very much an immoderate part of his character. So he seems to have a little bit of it in one area and none of it in another. Yeah, I think I think I agree with that um, analysis. I'd say in terms of the three kinds of moderation that we mentioned, the, he has some of that based on long training, which is risk averse, right? The Persians who have this training, they only wage defensive wars. They don't rush out and expand into other countries. Uh, he has the second kind of moderation, I guess what I call qualified moderation, where he has a monstrous desire to be loved. And as a result, he doesn't really care about some things that other people care about about and that can look like moderation um, and I think he's almost devoid of uh, the kind of moderation based on fear that we're talking about now in this book and I'm I'm even inclined to go so far as to wonder whether Cyrus doesn't know that that's not really moderation and in other words to whatever Tigranes teaches Cyrus he doesn't teach him that fear actually produces moderation he doesn't teach him that uh, if he spares the life of his father, Tigranes' father, the Armenian king, the Armenian king will be grateful and will not think of betraying Cyrus again. That that line of argument, is there any chance that that's just false? That you can't ever make people behave well toward you by being able to kill them and then saying, hey, guess what? I didn't kill you. You should be grateful. Yeah, this is an interesting, interesting question. I mean, one of the things I, I hate to bring another uh, book, but Machiavelli had read this book. And of course, he says it's better to be uh, feared than loved. Um, and I, he, of course, in that in, in the Prince Machiavelli mentioned Xenophon's Life of Cyrus as a book everyone should read. Um, so I suspect he learned something from this dialogue, Machiavelli himself. Um, but it, it's difficult to say um, whether and what Cyrus learned. I do you, could this be a possibility um, that Xenophon teaches his readers something? This seems to me to happen in the book a lot, that Xenophon is trying to teach his readers something that is, is a, a real lesson. In other words, it's taught. Tigranes does teach something, but that it goes over Cyrus's head and he doesn't get it. And this goes back to what I said last time about how 
when one reads this book, especially as a young, ambitious person, one is tempted to see Cyrus as the hero of the book, and he is, and you should, and you should admire him because he's admirable, and you should imitate him in some ways because there are things about him that are very impressive and, and, and worth imitating. But there are other places where I think Xenophon is criticizing Cyrus, and this would be an example of a lesson that's taught by a wise man that we could get if we gave enough time to the dialogue, but that Cyrus just whoosh, right over his head. He's sort of unwilling to hear it um, and, and goes on and on. And this comes out um, in a way, I mean, I hate to keep coming back to this, but it's just so uh, apparent when Cyrus says, he's just supposedly learned this whole lesson about moderation. And then when um, uh, Tigranes, his father, admits to having killed the wise person, Cyrus says, well, you can't blame him. You know, he, it's, just, it, it's just human. I would have almost, I would have done the same thing. And so Cyrus almost admits that, well, he would have killed Socrates too, or something like that, if you really want to read deeply into the metaphor. That's not moderate. <laughs> he clearly hasn't learned to, uh, to find Tigranes' wisdom impressive. So there's something about Cyrus that's just completely, um, completely, uh, gone over his head. And then the only other thing I would point out on this is, and then this is a real puzzle, is that at the end of this whole statement, at the end of all this talk about moderation and Tigranes saves his father and it's very impressive. Um, you know, Tigranes' father says, Cyrus, you know, I was, I was jealous that this wise man was taking my son the way one would be jealous about a wife. And it, this injects Eros into the conversation. And then the very last remark at the very end of the book, uh, of chapter two is that Tigranes' wife um, reiterates that she loves him much more than Cyrus and that she can't be, she, she doesn't love Cyrus. She doesn't find Cyrus attractive. She finds Tigranes the most attractive. And this is a very odd thing um, to, at the, you know, you've got this thing on moderation and then you've got this little erotic, erotic flourish. And then to have a woman say, and by the way, uh, just out of nowhere, I love you way more than I love him. Um, and you are much more lovable than him. There's something being taught here. So. He says, I didn't even look at him. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even look at him, you know? And, and so something is uh -huh. going on here, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I wonder if we could pull it out, if we could combine the moderation question with the question of the killing of the philosophic man with the love and, you know, just draw something out of this whole lesson. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it sounds to me like, I mean, this is quite the complicated knot. So let me just pull on one thread. Uh, let me pull on the one I take to be, be maybe mistakenly the, the simplest thread. Um, Cyrus promises Cyaxares that he's going to make the Armenian king more of a friend than he was before. But it looks like the way things are going in the dialogue between them, he's going to kill the Armenian king. And it's hard to understand how killing the Armenian king by making the Armenian admit that if somebody else did to the Armenian what the Armenian did to Cyrus, he would, he would have killed them. Uh, it's not clear how you make somebody uh, a better friend than before by killing them. Uh, I mean, maybe you would say, oh, they were such a, a terrible enemy that of course they're a better friend now that they're dead. But it's not clear that that's what Cyrus had in mind. Um, so, uh, maybe there's at least something that Cyrus genuinely does learn. Tigranes teaches him a way out, and he actually ends up rendering him uh, his father as a better friend than before. But there seem to be two parts to that. There's sparing the Armenian king, 
And then there's all the benefits that Cyrus does to the Armenian king. Um, do the benefits uh, matter more in thinking about what might make the, the um, Armenian king moderate than the threat of death, right? And then the relief that the, the threat of death didn't actually come to pass. So there's, I think this actually ties into some of the, some of the comments that Cyrus has in chapter three. And I'm thinking specifically of his conversation with Chrysantus, <clears throat> where uh, Chrysantus asks him to talk to the troops. He says, this is paragraph 49. Uh, then Chrysantus asked Cyrus, what if you should call the troops together and exhort them while it is still possible, if perhaps you too could make the soldiers better? And Cyrus said, Chrysantus, do not be distressed by the Assyrians' exhortations. For there is no exhortation so noble that it will in a single day make good those who are not good when they hear it. It could not make good bowmen unless they had previously practiced with care, nor spearmen, nor knights, nor even those competent to labor with their bodies unless they had previously exercised. And so this seems to say something around that, you know, there's nothing that Tigranes could say to Cyrus in that speech that would make him any different right? Because it's Cyrus's practice that has made Cyrus who he is. And there's also nothing that Cyrus can say to the Armenian that would make him become better, right? So it's only um, through Cyrus exerting this pressure of how to act towards the Persians, how, to, how the Armenians must act towards Cyrus and making them practice that, that would potentially make them into a friend if that's what Cyrus is trying to do. Yeah. Yeah, you just did, Brian, exactly what uh, I had been doing in my head when I was reading over this as well, which is putting those two things together. And it's interesting to me because you took a step that I hadn't yet taken. So the, the step that you took that I had thought of was, um, this is a commentary on um, the effect on the Armenian, right? Without some additional benefit, the Armenian is going to hate Cyrus as soon as Cyrus is out of his sight. Right, because uh, Cyrus humiliated the Armenian, right? So that experience cannot make the Armenian better. Uh, but you added to it the thought that nothing Tigranes could have said could make Cyrus better. And I wonder whether uh, that would be true were it not for something like Cyrus's training, right? In other words, that the difference between what Tigranes did with Cyrus and what Cyrus did with Tigranes' father is that Tigranes took advantage of something that was already in Cyrus just to show him something he kind of already knew on the basis of his training. That might be a, a, an exception to uh, what seems to me otherwise a, a perfect application of the implications of that speech with Chrysantis. Yeah, I like that. I, I wonder... I feel like, um, Jeff, I was re-listening to our uh, Athenian Plague episode the other day and uh, with, we had with Andrea Radanasu and Aretasanu, who's hopefully not going to listen to this and hear me butcher her name for the 37th time. Um, hi, Andrea. Actus makes uh, perfect. <laughs> and you mentioned, you know, something about the plague being divine retribution for Pericles' funeral oration. And I wonder if I can kind of take a page from your playbook there and wonder if the discussion of the death of the philosopher is some kind of commentary on what Cyrus becomes after that story, you know, because especially here, Cyrus is like, why are we talking? Talking doesn't do anything, right? Action 
is what counts. And he makes the same point um, in, on the next page in, in chapter three uh, at uh, line 55. Uh, regarding those completely uneducated in virtue, I would be amazed, Chrysantis, if a word nobly spoken would benefit them any more in the goodness of a man than a song beautifully sung would benefit in music those uneducated in music. And so what he seems to be saying there is, why are we wasting our time talking about stuff? Let's act. Action is is what what needs to happen in war, and action is what I need to do as Cyrus, which seems to be a very anti-philosophic um, idea, right? That dialectic is the core part of you know how we learn philosophy, and he is done with dialectic. Uh, you know, he's and he's not even in terms of his interaction with Cyaxerxes. Am I? I'm mispronouncing that too. Um, Cyaxerxes. He's not asking his boss questions. He's just saying, no, we should do this. You know, and so it's not a dialectic. It is a, hey, dude, like I'm in charge here. Uh, you're the titular head, but here's what I think we should do. And so it seems like maybe the death of the philosopher in the previous chapter is pointing us at something like we're done with philosophy in the education of Cyrus. And now it is just action and reaction that Cyrus will learn from and that we will learn from. Well, in the passage you quote, Brian, doesn't he imply that the song is of benefit to people trained in music, though, right? And he does address the Persian peers who have the training, and then he's hoping that uh, their actions will motivate the other soldiers who lack the training. So um, I think what you say is, is right in a qualified sense, but because Cyrus has had the training of the, the Persian youth, uh, Cyrus, I think, is open to speech um, to a degree further than, say, the, uh, the commoners who have been suddenly jumped up through a few weeks of training would be, right? Um, even on, on Cyrus's own, own ground. So let's pull on the second and, and more complicated uh, piece of the knot that I was referring to. And let me put it this way, and this just follows directly from, from Brian's point. Um, the philosopher, apparently, this wise man, taught Tigranes an argument that allows Tigranes to save his father before Cyrus. Right? That's what it looks like. Um, that argument was not sufficient to allow Tigranes to save the wise man before Tigranes' father. Right? So what are we to make of that? Uh, it looks like the wise man's argument is powerful for Cyrus to some extent but it was powerless for the Armenian king. Uh, that, that seems relevant to this issue of, of uh, whether speech can make somebody moderate, whether there's a word that can produce that effect in the soul. Well, what do you, hang on a minute now, <laughs> what do you make of Cyrus saying this to, to the father about the death? By the gods, Armenian, the wrongs you have committed seem to me to be human. Tigranes have sympathy for your father. I mean, does that seem like, uh, that, that, I, I'm not confident that that indicates that Cyrus has learned that, or that the argument has been effective, uh, effective on him, uh, you know, or something. Something is not there that should oh, be there. No, no. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't want to claim that the reason that uh, Cyrus spares Tigranes' father is because he's entirely persuaded of everything in the argument. Okay. Um, but the, the meaning of the word human in that passage is interesting to me. Is Cyrus saying, oh yeah, I would feel that way too? 
Or is Cyrus saying, that's the way you humans feel, but yeah. I, I don't have those feelings. Well, if we, if we pull in the string um, vis-a-vis the idea of the, you know, the person that can't appreciate music, right? Not being receptive to it because they can't appreciate it. Then this seems to say something about, you know, Tigrani's can talk about virtue with Cyrus because Cyrus understands the sweet song of virtue. But when Tigrani's tried to talk of virtue to his father, his father, it fell on deaf ears because the Armenian did not have the training in virtue that Cyrus had. Right. The Armenian is full of envy, apparently, which is why he kills the wise man, where at least we've had a claim that Cyrus is free of envy. And that's why he makes a good judge over who gets what in the army. Yeah. He has some understanding of the psychology of envy for the reason that you say, but also for the second reason that the, um, the reason that he says that he, he needs to go attack others when he talks to Saxaris is I'm concerned um, that my troops will envy each other, that they, if, if they're idle for too long, uh, envy uh, will break out. And so I need to feed, I need to get them all things right now. Uh, and so he seems to understand, he seems to have some self mastery when it comes to envy because he sees it in them and he's like, Oh no, I see where this is going if we stay here for too long. But, um, and so I, I grant the point that he, he, he understands it would seem what's going on in the father's soul. Um, and he understands with respect to envy and he understands what's going on in the souls of his men with respect to envy. But what he misses, it seems to me is that envy as a psychological concept is bound up with love and that he wants love more than anyone in the world. After all, he wants everyone in the world. He wants to be the beloved of every human being in the entire world. And he doesn't see that. I mean, I hate to say that, but I think it's, it's probably true. And so there's some part of him which is deeply susceptible to envy, just extraordinarily susceptible to envy, because he has to be the beloved of everyone in the world. And so one thing that's interesting and maybe a way to make sense of um, Tigranes' wife saying to Tigranes at the end of book one that I never even looked at him, is that Xenophon is very quietly saying, Cyrus wants everyone to be attached to him, to be the beloved of everyone. But he can't be the beloved of this woman. And he can't, in other words, his hope is not moderate. His hope to be the beloved of every human being and his, his longing to be the hope, uh, to be the, the, the beloved of every human being is so recklessly immoderate that it's, you know, it, it drives him to take over the entire world. And this woman already in book three, chapter one, is like, I don't love him. I love you. Well, what are you going to do about that, Cyrus? Like, what are you going to do about that? Because she loves him and not you. And you could take over the whole world, but then you got to deal with this woman because she apparently doesn't love you. And so it's just, and he doesn't see how susceptible he is to these, to these things. So, yeah, that's, that's great. And the, the cherry on the top of the Sunday you've just delivered to us is, of course, uh, Cyrus does exactly what the wise man did, namely take Tigranes away from Tigranes' father. The wise man died for trying to do that. Cyrus literally does it, right? So he's, he didn't learn the dangers of doing this, right? Now he's to some extent immune from those dangers because of his power. The wise man had no similar power 
Um, but that doesn't mean that uh, that isn't going to come around and get him in the end, right? Precisely because people are going to be angry at him when he tries to move all their devotion to him and away yeah. from everybody else. Yeah. And you can see this, um, I mean, it will, it will boil over later in the book, but you can even see it here when in book two or chapter two, um, the Armenian's wife tries to come to him and give him money uh, that she was going to give him for, for not killing her husband. And he says, woman, I don't want your wages. And she, he wants her honor. Her, it's not honorable to him to take wages. Like he, he wants, that's not what he wants. He wants something else from her. And this, in a way, giving him money is taking that away from him. It's taking the love, you know, the, he, you know, Machiavelli says, um, one of the most effective things that you can give away is mercy because it's free. It doesn't cost you anything to give, give someone mercy. And what they will do is love you for giving them mercy. This is the great secret of the Hebrew and Christian God. They just give away mercy and it doesn't cost them anything. So you can do that too. And Cyrus does that here. And now someone's trying to give him money uh, and it takes away the luster and the sheen. And one of the things that you see um, when he goes back to, the, to Armenia is that people run out in the streets with gifts for him and they're chanting his name and they're saying our father, our benefactor all of these things. That's what he wants. And to want that is not, um, is not moderate, but he, he doesn't see his own susceptibility to the kinds of things that his troops are susceptible to. Um, so, yeah. So, so let me press you on this because I think we're at a real crux here. Um, what we were saying earlier, and by we, I, I kind of have to uh, confess, I mean me, um, was that, uh, that um, nobody would uh, love you for being merciful to them, right? If Shiloh had my head on a chopping block and he's about to chop it off and then he says, you know what, Jeff, I'm gonna lay off this time. You owe me, man, right? I might kowtow to him when he's in my presence, but as soon as he's gone, I'm starting to call the phone numbers of hitmen trying to get Shiloh out of the picture, right? Because you know, if he could do that to me once, he could do it to me again, it was humiliating, I hate him. And yet, there's this story about this God that is going to be merciful to us. He's got our head on a chopping block, and he says, no, I'm not going to chop it off. You're going to get more than you deserve, right? And apparently, we're going to love him. So uh, we got to put these two things together. And is, is the crucial thing that it works for gods and it doesn't work for human beings. In other words, if you think that that guy who was going to chop your head off is just like you, then as soon as he's out of your sight, you say, I'm going to get that guy. But if you think that that thing that was going to chop off your head is so far above you that you could never reach him, then you say, man, I love that guy. I am yeah. so lucky, right? Is that the decisive difference? It seems that's a very nice analysis. It seems to me to be true. And would, would it, to fit Cyrus into this, would you say that Cyrus is successfully, this is why he's such an extraordinary person. And despite Xenophon's maybe quiet criticism of him, I think there's a lot there. He moves in the direction of godhood more effectively than any human being and more quickly than any human being, um, you know, can, can possibly imagine. In other words, he, he somehow, I mean, he's still susceptible to the thing you say, um, that is to say, giving mercy to a human being and the human being coming back for him. But on the other hand, he's so effective that he and he's so great and he makes the right decision every time and he never fails that it's he almost takes on the air of a god such that 
the kind of mercy he dispenses has a godlike feeling to it. Is that maybe I don't, that seems to me to be plausible? No, and it, I mean especially Tigrani's kind of lays that out right to a degree. Um, a twenty-two, I think it is. Um, where he's saying, but I do not say that knowing one's betters moderates by itself with also being punished by one's betters as my father now is. You know, he makes the case before then, like, listen, you crushed the king of the Armenians in like five minutes. If it's not obvious that you're better than he is, you know, now it can't be more obvious, right? And so you have that fear implanted in him that no matter what he does, and there's somewhere where I wrote, horns of a dilemma, which is one of my favorite kind of things. Um, I think that's actually with the, with the Assyrians where he puts them on the horns of a dilemma. So he's, you know, he has the Armenians on the horns of this dilemma where there's no escape from Cyrus. There's no possible move that they can make uh, because Cyrus is so much better than the Armenians. And that causes that fear. And so whatever iron can do, which is what he talks about in 23, right? Iron versus fear, whatever iron's capable of doing, you know, fear is much more effective. And back to your point about mercy, Shiloh, fear is also free. You know, when you don't have to send troops in because they are simply afraid of you, then, you know, what other way? And also that, you know, you have to provide tribute also godlike, right? It is fear me and give me what I want. So it does seem to fit that narrative we're talking about with, you know, kind of the, the Hebrew and Christian God and the difference in relative levels of something. And I, you know, I feel like we need to wrap up here, but I'd love for you guys to just take a stab at, you know, what is that quality that, is, that makes Cyrus so much better than the Armenian in this case or the other people he goes against in general? Yeah, I can take a brief stab, if only because it connects back to something that you were pointing out earlier, Brian, when you were wondering about the riskiness of his um, conduct on the battlefield. Um, his insistence on invisibility coupled with sudden appearance, um, we might call that uh, combination something like revelation or revelatory tactics, right? Your opponent is wondering, who are these guys? Where are they? How strong are they? And all of a sudden, they're there and they're attacking. And he seems to have variants of this over and over again. You want to know how many we are? Send somebody to come and see, right? He doesn't say, oh, yeah, we've got 10,000 troops or whatever it is. So it looks like uh, there's some kind of attempt to um, provoke this fear through sudden appearance and rapidity. Now, there might be more elements to it. I'm sure it can be traced all the way back to his moderation, but I, I'd stress those things, at least in this book. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And I mean, uh, one other thing to, um, since you know, we're short on time and you know, we still got two, two chapters to go, is you can see Cyrus, for people who are wondering, what, what do you mean by saying he's closer to a god than any human and these kinds of things? Well, he... And in, 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 um, it's interesting that chapter two follows chapter one, because what he does in chapter two is that he <clears throat> he does what he always does. He goes into the Armenians and the Chaldeans and he says to each, um, you've wronged one another. I will make this right. Here is a just arrangement for you from me. And here is what is fitting for each of you. 
and I'll keep returning to the big boy and the big coat and the little boy and the little coat. But he does that again here. He says, Armenians, you guys can graze your flocks in the Chaldean mountains. Chaldeans, you guys can plant your crops in the Armenian fields. This will work, and I will set up a person here to see. And so what he gradually does is like a god. He makes the justice of the entire world dependent upon him. And that, and that's what he, I mean, that's what he does with his men. He says, look, the most virtuous will win, you know, or we'll get the goods. And so we just have example after example of him making the world's justice depend on his judgment, which is a very godlike thing to do. He's the one piece um, of the archway that if you pull it out, the whole thing will collapse. And he's made himself into that um, very slowly. I think that's a, a great point to, to wrap it up. So thank you, Shiloh. Thank you, Jeff. Um, had fun on this episode. Oh, yeah, me too. Thank you, guys. This was excellent. Thanks. All right, listeners, we'll see you for uh, book four next week. Hope you enjoy it. Combat and Classics on Facebook. We actually got an Instagram page up, um, you know, because I'm young and hip now or something. Uh, and we're also on Twitter. So you can check us out on all those platforms. And thanks for listening. And thanks, guys. Bye, guys. Thanks, Brian.